Good morning. Everybody doing all right? Excellent. You can see the enthusiasm on your faces. So my name is indeed Carl Brower, and I am indeed a former professional French horn player, and I will bring all of that musical education to bear on the text this morning. <laughs> but I do want to start off by talking about bicycles, because I think it's important. For me, at the age of nine to maybe 13, bicycles ruled my world. Everything that was good and right in the world had to do with me and my friends riding bicycles and doing stuff together. And I grew up in the late 70s and early 80s, and I only say that uh, just for informational purposes. I don't, uh, I'm not trying to make some statement about what decades are better than others. There are indeed some who would say things like, the 80s were definitely better than today. And then there are other people who are wrong. But this was in the, this is kind of before the days of like keeping kids safe, right? There weren't like car seats in the cars, right? If you had a kid and you were a mom, you just held your kid in the front seat and your arms would protect them. Uh, there weren't really any seat belts to speak of, especially in the back seat. There's certainly no shoulder harnesses. It was just a weird lap belt that would just slice you in half if you got in a wreck. And so you just stuffed them down in the seats and you didn't really use them. Playgrounds were a nightmare. There were death traps. All of the play structures at the playground were made out of steel, including the slide, which gets like three, four hundred degrees in the middle of the summer. And so if you wanted to go down the slide, you really needed to want it. We had things called monkey bars. Kids, monkey bars were these like crazy structures of just steel tubes connected together. And they usually were in the shape of something that looked like a, a prison for children or maybe like the, the Thunderdome from Mad Max or something like this. And all of this, if you were on top of any of these play structures and you fell, you were absolutely breaking something. Because there weren't like wood chips or mulched up rubber tires on the ground for you to break your fall. You just fell on concrete or maybe asphalt. Kids, asphalt is like concrete, except it's much darker and it's still hard, so it absorbs the heat from the sun. So when you fall and break your arm, you also burn your skin. <laughs> and that applied to the bicycles as well. We didn't have helmets, shoulder pads, knee pads, elbow pads, neck pads, whatever kind of pads kids are wearing today when they ride their bikes, we didn't have them. We just rode our bikes, we just hung out, had a good time. Our parents said, go, do whatever you want. The sun goes down and that's when I expect you home. Awesome. And so we did, we ran around, we did all this stuff. It was super, super fun. And it was all about BMX, right? You wanted to be a BMX bike. You didn't want to have like a 10 speed, no. You needed a BMX and the cooler the bike, the cooler the kid. So I had a mongoose, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> and we wanted to be BMXers because we, we saw these movies like BMX Bandits and Rad and these kinds of things. And we were like, I wanna do these tricks, right? So we would get together in parking lots and we would start to make like ramps to jump off of. Hey Carl, did you, did you have those cool checkerboard shoes that you would wear? Yes, I had the checkerboard vans, I totally wore them. And so anyway, we would gather in the parking lots and we'd build these ramps. Hey Carl, did you also have lots of cool stickers all over your bike to make it look like you're really a BMXer? Yes, I totally did. And so we built these ramps, we're trying to jump. Hey Carl, did you also have the little placard thing on the front of your handlebars with a number on it to really make it look like you raced professionally? Yes, I had all of that stuff, you guys. Stop interrupting, I'm trying to tell this story. Okay, so we built ramps, we would jump things, and so uh, our parents weren't completely ignorant to the idea of safety. 
they did give us boundaries, right? And it generally was kind of the major streets around our neighborhood. Don't go across this street to the north. Don't go across this street to the west and so on. And there was this one street that we wanted to go across real bad because there was a vacant lot over there and we thought, oh, off-roading, that would be amazing. But we didn't go because our parents said we couldn't and so we didn't. But then somebody bought that land and they were gonna turn it into like a shopping strip or a, uh, a grocery store or something. And step one in that process was to bring truckload after truckload after truckload of dirt until there was this like 20 or 30 foot high pile of dirt. And my friends and I would gather in the parking lot and stare at the dirt that we really wanted to go and drag our bikes to the top of and ride down, but we couldn't because our parents said we shouldn't do that. And so one day we were riding in, in this parking lot and jumping ramps that we'd made and some of my friends were like, I can't take it. And they went, they just went across the street and we were terrified they were gonna get hit because we didn't all go. A few of them went and they didn't get hit and they went over there and they went to the top of the hill and they rode down and they just kept doing that. And as I'm staring and thinking, I wanna. <laughs> I heard the voice of my father, son, I thought, oh, it's like an Obi-Wan Kenobi moment. Like I'm, I'm hearing his voice. And then I looked over my shoulder and he's actually right there. <laughs> he snuck up on me like, I'm, like a ninja, except my dad's not a small dude. And he was in a 1981 Suburban. How did he sneak up on me in a Suburban? I do not know, but there he was. Son, yes sir? I want you to remember what I've talked about. We don't go across this street. We don't go across Judge Ely. We don't go across these other streets. Just remember what we've talked about. I love you, have a good time. And he drove off and he rolled up his window. Okay? And so I'm thinking, and I went anyway. And I went across the street and I dragged my bike to the top. I did almost get hit by a car on the way over there. And I dragged my bike up to the top and I rode down and I did this over and over. And I did wreck my bike and I did hurt myself and I did damage my bike. And in hindsight, I could look back on that and say, my father was trying to take care of me and protect me. He wasn't trying to be mean, he was trying to be helpful. He was trying to say to me, rest in the truth of me knowing what's best for you. Rest in this knowledge that I, in my wisdom and experience, are saying to you, not crossing that road is what's best for you. He wanted me to abide in that teaching. And that's similar to what we're going to see here in this text today. As we look at this text, we're going to see John kind of exhorting his listeners, his readers, to, to abide, to rest in this teaching that's been given. So let's do this. Let's pray, and then we will get into the text together. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that you are good, that you love us. You are gracious and merciful to us. We thank you that, that we get to gather like this and pray that you'll be near to us. Help us by the power of your spirit that you would illuminate this, uh, this word to us, that we would have our hearts awakened to the truth of what your scripture teaches. And as a result, we might know you more. And by knowing you more, we might love you more. And by loving you more, we might then worship you more correctly. And so Lord, I ask in particular for myself, I ask you to bless uh, me today, help me to be faithful, to proclaim the truth of your word this morning, and that we would be encouraged together. We love you, we thank you for your son, and we pray in his name, amen. Okay, so let's get into this. We are in uh, the second chapter of 1 John, we'll be starting in verse 28, which reads, and now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So what does this verse mean? This verse just means this, John is saying, I love you. 
rest in Christ so that when he comes, when he returns, you may know, we may know that we belong to him. He's saying, I love you, rest in Christ, so that when he returns, we may know that we belong to him. But let's dissect it a little more. Let's look at the first two words. The first two words of this verse are, and now. Right, so he's done a lot of talking. He's given a lot of information, but he has not made a lot of demands upon his readers. He's not said to his readers much, here's what I want you to do. And that's what he's doing here. So when he says, and now, he's basically saying, in light of all that I've said before, everything I've said, been saying, Here's now what I want you to do. And then he says, little children. He says, and now little children abide in him. And this is not the first time he's used this phrase. He's used the phrase little children before, calling his audience little children. This phrase, depending on how we use it, might carry a different connotation. We could use little children in a condescending way, right? I could be talking to a friend who doesn't seem to be able to keep up with me. And I say, oh, little children, what's the matter? You don't understand? I could be rude and condescending. I could be frustrated and anxious. Little children, get back in the house, right? Or I could just say, little children, I love you. And that is indeed what John is saying. John is using this phrase, little children, as a term of endearment. He's not being condescending. He's not being frustrated with them. He's saying to them, I love you. John is entreating his audience with this loving warning to remain and to not chase after the the false teachings of these antichrists that he's been mentioning in prior verses that might seem alluring to his audience in the same way that that dirt mound was alluring to me. He has affection and patience and love and grace for his audience. He loves them. He does not want to see them wander away from the safety and the security of the truth and kind of into the danger and the flimsiness of this false doctrine. The next phrase is abide in him. He says, and now little children abide in him. Now we've talked about this word. We've talked about abiding a lot over the last few weeks, right? We've talked about how it means to remain, to stay. And in this particular context, it means to remain in the right doctrine, the truth about what's been preached about, about Christ, And as we've talked about, John has been writing this letter in part to refute the teachings of some false teachers, of some antichrists that he was mentioning before. And so when we talk about this word abide, we kind of think of this idea of of holding on to, clinging to, remaining in, and holding on to Jesus. But it's less about us holding on to him and more about him holding on to us. It's more about Jesus clinging to us. And so this kind of brings back uh, an image that Jeff brought up a couple weeks ago in his sermon when he talked about the vine and the branches. He was alluding to a passage that we find in the Gospel of John by the same author. And we didn't look at it explicitly, explicitly at that time, but he did talk about this idea of the vine being connected to the branch. And so I do want us, I want us to look at that passage together. So the Gospel of John chapter 15, and we'll look at the first four verses. And this is Jesus talking. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. And so this idea is that it's not so much, that, it's not as though we don't hang on to him, but it's more so that he hangs on to us. He provides the nourishment that we require for life. He provides the strength that we need to even cling to him ourselves. And so the branch cannot survive without the vine. The vine is what supplies the branch with all that's needed. 
The vine supports and clings to and abides in the branch so that the branch may then abide in the vine. Zach used a really good example of this uh, last week uh, to help us to kind of see the relationship that exists. It isn't just some sort of intellectual idea that we're assenting to. I need to abide in Christ like a robot or something. It's more that there's a relationship that's taking place. That he abides in us because of his love for us and his sacrifice for us. We then abide in him. So this example that Zach used last week, uh, I'm going to use other people's examples because they're good. Why should I make them new ones, right? So Zach used this, made, made, used this great example of his daughter Isla, how she's afraid of bugs. And when she sees one and gets a- afraid, she wants daddy to pick her up and protect her. So he picks her up. And when he picks her up, she clings to his shirt. She holds on tightly to him. But for her to actually abide is then to trust in the relationship that she has with her daddy. To trust in the fact that daddy promises to protect her and he will hold her. She doesn't have to hold on tightly like that because daddy is going to hold her. She could let go completely and yet her daddy would still hold her. Now there is a sense in which she is holding on but at the end of the day her daddy is the one that's doing that. And so to have confidence that her daddy is going to keep that promise and hold on to her, and not confidence in her own ability to hold on to him, that is what it means to abide. Let's keep going. The next phrase is, so that when he appears. He says, and now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. First thing for us to notice is that he says when he appears, not if. John is declaring with some certainty that there's this notion that Jesus will indeed appear. He's going to come. He's going to settle accounts. He's going to judge the living and the dead. It is a certainty. It's similar to the certainty that Zach and I experienced during the work week. Zach and I, uh, when we work during the week here at the church, we share an office. And we're in the same room and our desks face each other. So we could spend all day just talking, but we don't. We do our work. I have members of the church to reach out to. He has members of the church to reach out to. I have studying to do. He has studying to do. And so we do those things. But we are both extremely certain that at some point during the workday, Tim Hollis is going to burst into the room. Hey, guys, have you seen this new YouTube video? Like, that's happening. It is a certainty. It's not if, it's when. So John is giving two possible outcomes for how the people respond when Christ appears. So there's this certainty that Christ is going to come, and there's two possible outcomes of how they might respond when that happens. They will either have confidence, or they will shrink from him in shame at his coming. And I want us to look at each of those separately. So the first one is, we may have confidence. So that when he appears, we may have confidence. First, I want us to notice that John uses this plural pronoun, we. He doesn't say, so that when he appears, you may have confidence. He says, when he appears, we may have confidence. And he's not using we in some weird way that we might use it, right? Like a father who sits on the couch in his living room with his son and says, hey, son, we really need to mow that yard. Dad's not mowing that yard. Or a boss who walks into the, uh, the room where all of his employees are sitting at their desk and, hey, guys, we really need to get these projects done. And he goes back to his office. He's not doing those projects. Or Batman would say to Robin, hey, Robin, we really need to get my bat suit down to the cleaners. Batman ain't doing that. That's not how John's using this word. He is actually including himself. He's saying we because John is inviting his audience to join him in abiding in Christ. He's asking them to do what he's doing. By using this little pronoun, John is kind of in effect saying what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
And so he's saying we may have confidence, but confidence in what? Well, let's look back at this passage in John's gospel that we looked at a minute ago in chapter 15, where we're talking about the vine and the branches. We looked at the first four verses. Let's move on to the fifth. Let's look at the the fifth verse. It will help us. Jesus says in verse 5 of John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so back in our passage here, in 1 John, he's telling us that when Christ appears, one possible outcome is that we abide in him and therefore have confidence in this truth of the gospel. This reality that Jesus Christ has indeed reestablished the kingdom of God on earth through his life and death and resurrection, and that he will one day return to reign and rule over that kingdom. And those that who abide in him can be confident that they will be co-heirs with him in this. And not only this, but even our ability to bear fruit, meaning our ability to walk in confidence into Christ's commands, to be obedient to Christ's commands, is dependent upon this abiding. As he says here at the end of verse 5 in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing, literally nothing good. Apart from Christ, we cannot be faithful and obedient. Apart from Christ, we cannot love God rightly. Apart from God, apart from Christ, we cannot love others rightly. Apart from Christ, we cannot even have genuine faith. We cannot even trust God and exercise faith without Jesus. So what does John want his audience to have confidence in? That the vine is what sustains. That Christ is what gives the life that is needed. Because of Christ, because of this vine, we can have confidence. And this is beautiful, church. This idea that we can stand confident on the day of Christ's return because we don't have to worry about whether we've measured up because someone else has measured up for us. This confidence comes in a knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done. Let's keep going. He says, we, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So John is saying there is this other option. There is this other option, this other thing that could happen when Christ returns, and we don't want that option. And that would be to shrink from him in shame. What does that mean? What does that mean to shrink from him in shame? And first, I think we need to understand what's being meant. What is meant by this word shame? We tend to equate that word with guilt, like the kid who's got caught with her hand in the cookie jar, this kind of a thing. There's more going on there than just guilt. There are two kinds of shame that are being referenced here. One is objective shame. Objective shame is what God says about you, is what others see and say about you. Subjective shame is what you say about yourself. And both of those things are at play here. And so during those BMX years that I told you about, when I was super cool with all my stickers, one of the things I would do, because I thought it was clever and funny, was I would mess with people's mailboxes. And I mean a real rebellious, like ride down lifting up the flags, even if there's no outgoing mail. (laughs) Woo, rebel. No, that's not what I mean. What I mean is I would go to mailboxes and take people's mail out and throw it in the gutter or put it in somebody else's mailbox or throw it away. That's so funny. Well, it turns out it's not very funny. It's also a federal offense. It is super duper illegal, right? Now, at the time, I had no shame. I didn't feel bad about it at all. That was a clever little prank. No big deal. Some guy's going to have his electricity turned off because I threw away his electric bill or something. I didn't realize those things. So I didn't feel any subjective shame. But objectively, that's shameful. God would look at that and say, you have broken the laws of your land. You have disobeyed me. That is a shameful act. So objectively, I should have some shame. Subjectively, I did not. 
On the other hand, I might be here during the week and in my office with Zach waiting for Tim to burst in and we're just having a conversation. And during the conversation, I might begin to feel some sort of weird subjective shame that I can't keep up with him intellectually. I can't think as fast as him. I'm not as clever as him. I haven't memorized as many things as he. he I don't remember as many things. Oh, and I start feeling real bad. Oh, I'm the worst. But that's the subjective shame that doesn't need to be there because objectively, that's not shameful. God doesn't look at me and hold me accountable for being as clever or smart or as funny as Zach. And yet I feel this subject of shame. So you can have one without the other, but what we're talking about is something where both are occurring. So there's this connection between this idea that John's giving us about shrinking away in shame that John speaks of here and the shame that we see like in the garden in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve first eat of that fruit and they become aware of the difference between good and evil, between right and wrong, they recognize their nakedness, they cover themselves and they hide from God. They shrink from God in shame because both subjective shame and objective shame are both there. They feel ashamed because they see and understand their own sin. And objectively, God does indeed declare them to have been shameful, to have disobeyed him. And there are consequences for their sin. So John is saying here that the passage in this passage that to abide in Christ is to avoid this need for shrinking away from him in shame. Because those who are in Christ neither have objective shame because God declares them to be righteous, nor should they have subjective shame because they recognize that all the shame that's due for their sin has been put on the shoulders of Christ, that he has done all that's necessary to cover their sin. Now, this is not the same as feeling contrition over your sin, Right? You sin against God today and you feel badly because you should, because you recognize that you have sinned, but the response is not shame. The response is joy in the knowledge that that sin has been paid for. All I need to do is confess that sin, repent, turn from it, and trust in my God who has made it possible for all of these things to be paid for in Christ. And so John is also saying that those who do not abide in Christ, meaning in particular in this context, those false teachers, those antichrists that he was talking about, they will indeed have shame, both objective shame and subjective shame because God's judgment for their sin makes them objectively shameful and their shrinking from him at his coming is this evidence of the subjective shame that they will feel. So let's look one more time at the uh, Gospel of John in chapter, fe- in j- chapter 15. We'll look at the vine and the branches one more time, and then we'll just go on to the next verse. We've now done the first five, and we'll look at verse six of John 15, which reads, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And so this, this verse, this text is dealing with the coming judgment of unbelievers upon the return of Christ. And so looking back at our text here in 1 John, by saying that those false teachers, those antichrists that he spoke of earlier in this chapter and the previous one, will indeed be shrinking from him in shame because they are withered branches. They are branches that are no longer sustained by the vine because they they have rejected what the vine has to give. So John's warning his audience. He's warning you and I. He's exhorting us to cling to this truth about Jesus Christ and to not be swayed by these false teachers. And here's what's difficult, church. Good, right, faithful doctrine and bad, evil, wicked, false doctrine are both going to come to us through the mouths of those who profess to be believers. People that look nice, speak nice, they're kind, and it will sound good. 
Because false teachers don't come and say, hey, hey, I know you, li- you love Jesus and you've been li- listening to that whole gospel thing in the scriptures. I got a whole new gospel for you. You should come follow me. They're not gonna do that. They're gonna subtly twist the truth into something evil and draw you away. They will tickle your ears with things that sound nice, that look nice. Just like that dirt hill looked nice to me, but all, all that was awaiting me was some danger. And so this, of course, brings us back, as it always should, to theology. Holding to sound doctrine, truly abiding in Christ, not following false teachers, those things necessarily mean that we must know what is true because we are faithfully studying God's word. As the scripture says in Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is through a knowledge and an understanding of what God teaches in the scriptures that we have the ability to discern the difference between good doctrine and false doctrine. But that weight doesn't fall completely on our own shoulders. God has provided other means. God has given us grace and put other safeguards in place for us. Namely, he has given us the structure of the church in his word, that we have godly elders who lead us and shepherd us, who, whose job it is to keep an eye out for false doctrine, whose job it is to pay attention for if there are wolves trying to come in and lead people astray. And they are here to protect us, to help us, to shepherd us, to, pro- to provide helpful counsel. And that's a gift from God. Let's keep going. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So John is making this connection here and he's been making it between this abiding and resting in Christ and the return of Christ. Because he's, he's wanting us to see that there is this, this forward-looking component to our faith. That what we know is coming in the future should affect what we do and think and the ways that we behave today. In Back to the Future, when Marty McFly goes back in the DeLorean to 1955, I just lost like 30% of you, and he meets Doc Brown. Doc Brown has a tough time getting on board with this idea that this kid's from the future. But once he understands it and once he knows what the future is and he learns about the lightning strike at the clock tower and everything changes, right? His behavior in his present is radically changed because of his knowledge about what's coming. And the same should be true for us. We have a knowledge about what's coming because God has revealed it to us in his word. That Jesus Christ is indeed returning. That he is going to judge the living and the dead. And that those who have hope in Christ will be counted as righteous because God has declared them to be righteous. And will be raised to eternal reward. And those who have not put their hope in Christ will be raised to eternal punishment. And so those of us who truly have our hope in Christ, who've been given this gift of faith, who know that upon this return that we will be found not wanting, but righteous. There is joy, there is hope, which brings us to the final verse of chapter two, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So what does this verse mean? It means this, if Jesus Christ is righteous, then so are those who are connected to him, who are united to him by grace through faith. If Jesus Christ is righteous, then so are those who are united to him by grace through faith. Now on our first quick reading, as we first look over this, it might seem like the point of this verse is somehow to tell us uh, that if you know Jesus is righteous, now you magically have the ability to look at other people and know if they're righteous. 
to know if they've been saved, to discern who's a believer and who's not. But that's not what John's point is. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that if Jesus is righteous, then those who are united to him are also righteous. And here's what we really need to understand, church, because this is one of John's major points in this book, is that there is an inextricable connection between having been declared to be righteous by God and actually living righteously. If you have been declared to be righteous by God, then your life will be fundamentally changed and you will then begin to live righteously. So let's pick this verse apart a little bit. If you know that he is righteous, this is the first phrase. What does it mean? What does that mean to know he is righteous? Well, first we need to remember what righteousness means. It just means to be right, to do right, to have right standing before God. It's kind of this legal declaration. It is to act justly. It is to live according to the law of God. God sets this standard and then to meet that standard perfectly is righteousness. Anything less, anything less than perfectly meeting that standard is unrighteousness. To be out of step with God's law is therefore unrighteous. Well, only Christ has accomplished this. We cannot. It's out of our reach. We cannot attain it. Not on our own. Righteousness is something that is imputed to us, given to us by Christ. The righteousness, the right standing before God of a believer is, like their salvation, something that has been done for them by Christ. So when John says, if you know he is righteous, he's implying all of this. He's saying that to know Christ is righteous is to know that he has indeed lived this perfect life, that he has earned this righteousness. He has lived up to that standard and that he gives that that righteousness to the believer. He imputes it to them so that while Jesus has indeed lived a righteous life, God then declares the believer to be righteous. So Jesus is righteous. And all that righteousness is available to any who will call upon his name. So let's finish the verse. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, does that mean that anybody who does something nice is somehow now belongs to God? No. He's not saying any righteous act then therefore somehow makes you a believer. But it's important for us to understand what kind of statement we're dealing with. It looks on the surface as though this verse is some sort of if-then statement, some sort of cause and effect, right? The cause being you knowing Christ is righteous, the effect being you now have this magic ability to discern other people's righteousness. But that's not what he's saying. This is more of an evidence and an inference statement. The evidence being that God has sent his son and Jesus Christ has indeed lived this righteous life. And what we can infer from that is that anyone who are connected to him, anyone who are united to him by grace through faith are therefore also righteous. They receive this righteousness from, from Christ. The idea is that those who are born of God look like God. It's like the idea of kids looking like their parents. If you look at Taylor Brower, you'll say, hey, that kind of looks like Carl except handsome. But it's not really about physical appearance because God doesn't have physical appearance. God's a spirit. It's more about how they behave. What they do is the way that you see. So when you speak to my son and you hear the way he talks, you hear the way he thinks, you pay attention to the way he argues, you watch the way that he walks, you pay attention to the way he thinks and how he cares, you will see a great many similarities between he and I. We're not exactly the same, but there's a lot of similarity. 
So John is saying, if you understand this truth about Christ, then you can be sure that those who look like God are therefore from God. This is in contrast, and this is the point John is making, it's in contrast to the false teachers and the Antichrist. It isn't so much that you need to figure out who other people are that are believers, but rather he's trying to help us see that the false teachers and the antichrists do not look like Christ. They don't walk like him, they don't talk like him, they don't behave like him because they are not indeed of him. He's basically saying you will know them by their fruit. And so as we talked about abiding, how it's kind of this trusting in an actual relationship, knowing that Jesus Christ, God himself, does all of the stuff that's necessary for our salvation, We could be swayed as we talk about abiding, abiding, abiding. It's just resting in God, knowing that he's done all the things. We can begin to believe something that's the opposite of what John's real point is. We could believe all I got to do is be like, sweet, Jesus, I got Jesus, I'm all set. I really got nothing to do. But instead, what John is saying is that there is a reality about what your life will look like. If you truly abide in Christ, you will indeed do good works. You will obey his commands. You will flee from temptation. You will not sin. Now, that doesn't mean you'll never, ever sin or that you'll live perfectly the whole rest of your life. But it's this idea that you are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer bound to your sin. We've used this example of of a telephone before about being temptation, right? So there's this telephone and it's the temptation towards sin. It rings for everyone. Unbelievers are kind of obligated to answer the phone. Believers don't have to. We can flee from temptation. We don't have to answer that phone call. Our lives will inherently look different as a result. If you abide in Christ, then you rest in the knowledge that his righteousness has been imputed to you and you are no longer a slave to your sin. He's fundamentally changed you. For an example, let's think of Haddon Hollis. Haddon Hollis is the three-year-old son of our worship minister, Tim Hollis. Haddon has been born into this family, and so he is a Hollis. And because he's a Hollis, there's an expectation that he's going to grow into this legacy of his parents. He will likely be a man of great intelligence and compassion and wisdom and discernment and on and on, because these are things that we see that are true about Tim and Kelsey, his parents, mostly Kelsey. Haddon will also likely be a gifted musician, because that is a gift that goes back generations in the Hollis family. But even though he's been given this gift of this kind of musical legacy, which is a part of now his identity that he has in being a Hollis, he will still need to practice. If he wants to truly follow in his father's footsteps, if he wants to play the guitar like his dad, he'll need to get a guitar, learn how to play it, grow a sweet beard, and above all, practice. He will need to practice diligently day after day after day. And even if Haddon doesn't do this perfectly, and he won't, he won't ever actually be able to be exactly like his father. But he will still be a Hollis. Even if he uses his musical gifting, playing some other instrument like the French horn or something, the fact that he's a Hollis will never change. Haddon's efforts at being like his dad, the amount that he does or doesn't practice, is not going to make him more or less of a Hollis. He's already 100% Hollis. But those efforts will indeed make it more evident, more clear to people like you and I that he is his father's son. And so to go, go back to the vine and the branch again, the vine 
as we've said, is supporting the branch and giving it everything it needs to, to be branchy, right? The branch, though, still has a job to do. The branch still has to produce blossoms. The branch still has to produce fruit. That's the job of the branch. Often, a branch that remains connected to a vine for a long period of time begins to look more like the vine. It may even produce other branches off of this branch, but they all lead back to the vine. All of those branches are sustained by the life-giving sustenance that the vine provides. But over time, this branch, if you went and found a vine that was 30, 40, 50 years old, and you found a branch, you might say, oh, this is the main vine for sure. But if you trace it back, you'll see it's connected to the main vine somewhere else. Over time, the branch begins to look more and more and more like the vine. So John's telling his audience here that because Jesus is righteous and because we are united to him in faith, that that righteousness that Jesus has is imputed to us and that we have been declared to be righteous by God. And this is not some sort of ongoing work. Like Haddon is 100% Hollis, God declares us to be 100% righteous. On the day of our salvation, we don't earn that righteousness. It's given to us as a gift. And this is why John uses the phrase, has been born here at the end of the verse. He says, has been born of him. This has been born is what we call a past perfect tense verb, which means that the work of righteousness is not only in the past, but it's complete. Like the branch, we have a job to do. Because we've been given this gift of faith, along with that faith, something that is inextricably connected to the faith is repentance. Part of repentance is turning from sinful behaviors and exhibiting new behaviors instead. It is to renounce and reject sin and to walk in holiness. And again, this isn't perfect and sinless behavior. Only Christ has accomplished that. The residue of sin still remains on us, but it is a recognition that righteousness is not only something that's objectively declared by God, but it then becomes subjectively true for us as we learn to live righteously. Just like little Haddon practicing the guitar won't make him more of a Hollis, us walking in righteousness, us being faithful and obedient and walking in holiness is not going to make us more righteous. Haddon is already 100% Hollis because of his heritage and genuine believers are already 100% righteous because of their heritage. God declares the Christian to be perfectly righteous, holy, spotless, blameless, only because of Christ. And a genuine believer will, to a degree, display the subjective truth of this declaration that our lives will begin to look more and more and more like what God has already declared us to be. So at the end of the day, this passage that, that we're studying today, John is trying to tell us, he's trying to tell his audience, which includes you and I, abide, rest, rest in Christ. Because resting in Christ is the actual solution. Sinners like you and I are prone to want to be our own saviors. We want to be the vine instead of faithfully being a branch. Resting in the actual Savior, abiding in the real vine, is the solution. It's the solution to your parenting. If you have trouble with your kids, you're trying to figure out how to discipline them, raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, be faithful. The solution is not you getting better. The solution is Christ. 
The solution is to abide in what you know to be true about what God has declared about you. If your marriage is broken, if there's conflict, if there's bitterness, if there's anger, if there's lack of trust, if there's lack of intimacy, the solution is not 19 steps to a better marriage. The solution is to abide. Abide in Christ. This is true for all of your relationships at work, in your personal life. It's even true about us just trying to walk in holiness, just trying to be a faithful branch, trying to read our Bibles, trying to pray, trying to serve, trying to participate in the life of the church, trying to do all these things. None of those things, as Christ told us in John 15, can be done apart from him. Abiding in Christ is the actual solution. We cannot say, oh, this is a sweet vine. I like being this branch. This is kind of awesome. And just kind of hang out. No, the branch, by virtue of the fact that it's connected to the vine, is compelled to grow. It's compelled to produce these blossoms. It's compelled to to grow and bear fruit because of the life-giving sustenance that the vine provides. What does that even mean, though? What does it mean, abiding in Christ is the solution? What does that mean? What do we have to do? It means that we return to the source that as a branch, when we find it difficult to produce fruit, that we don't just white knuckle it and try to figure it out and work harder, that we turn back to the source, we turn back to the vine and say, I need more. I need more of you. I need more of what you give because I can't do this. I can't produce this fruit. I can't make these blossoms. I cannot do what I've been created to do on my own. And I turn to the vine and I say, help me. Give me more of what only you can give. I cannot, as a branch, get my sustenance and my energy and what I need anywhere else. It is only in the vine. We plead for help from the only one who can truly give us what we need. And then we will be tempted, church, to look at the other branches and compare ourselves. Oh, look at that branch. It's got so much fruit. Look how many blossoms are on that one. I wish I was like that branch. Or, this branch is terrible. That branch should be more like me. I'm an awesome branch. Has anyone noticed what a great branch I am? And in either case, those places are focusing our attention not on the vine, not on where the life and the, and the sustenance and the, and the joy will come from, but instead we're looking to other branches to compare ourselves. The standard that we are somehow trying to meet, we forget, has already been met in Christ. The vine has already done everything that's needed for you to be a faithful branch. Jesus does not quantify what it looks like to be faithful in John 15. John does not quantify what it looks like to be faithful here in this chapter. And that's on purpose. Because our job is not to somehow measure up to some standard that we cannot meet, but it's instead to recognize that standard's already been met. Our job is to be faithful. Faithfulness looks different between you and between me. It even looks different between me today and me tomorrow and me yesterday. Faithfulness is pursuing this life of holiness and this life of righteousness and recognizing we're not going to be perfectly successful in it. But the good news is someone has already been perfectly successful in it for us. We are to abide. We are to be faithful. Let's pray as those who are serving communion come forward.
Gracious Lord, we thank you that you are indeed a good God, that you love your children and you give us good gifts. And yet we are prone to wander, as your word tells us. We are prone to want to take your place. We are prone to want to be our own savior. We're prone to want to be the vine. So we ask you to forgive us where those places are true. Help us, help us to trust in you. Help us to trust in this reality that you have indeed taken all of that shame for us on the cross, that your son has done this for us and that we can rest and abide in this truth that we know that this, this kind of eschatological idea of Jesus returning, that when the end comes, we don't have to shrink from him in shame at his coming. We can stand with confidence knowing that we have been declared to be righteous and that when you come and you ask whether or not we've met the standard, the answer is yes. We've met the standard in Christ. He has done that for us. And so Lord, we ask you to help us. Help us to really, truly rest and abide in you. But that we would not be sluggish or slothful or lazy in that. But instead we would have great zeal, great joy in pursuing a life of holiness. Not because we want to earn this, this righteousness that's already been earned for us. But because that's what we do. Because that's what the branch does. It grows. It bears fruit. It trusts that the vine will give it all that it needs. So we ask you to do this in us because as we've already learned, we can't do anything apart from you. And so we come to you. We come to the vine and say, help us. We need you. We love you. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen.